Patrick myself. Okay, welcome everybody. I guess we're live. Um, welcome back. Sorry I missed last week, but it was important to be with my dad. 70 big ones. It's hard to believe. Okay, let's pray and we'll jump in. Um, we got a lot to cover tonight as per every week. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we bless you and praise you. Lord, my day is full. I ask you to calm my heart uh, and all of us. Uh, Jesus, may we leave behind the things that uh, distract us. May we be present to you. May you open our minds and our hearts to really be here, uh, to turn to you. Bless our time together. Bless all those watching from home. Uh, and we give this time to you uh, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is Nicole. If you did, did, did anybody know Nicole? I'm Nicole. Um, I'm just standing in for Stephanie tonight, but she wanted me to make a quick announcement. Um, hopefully, you guys all saw her email. But if any of you guys are um, planning to get sacraments this east, this coming Easter, she wanted you um, to email her your name um, and just that you are want to get sacraments. And then if you are out of state, so I guess anyone that's watching online, uh, if you're out of state, just mention that as well. Your email to her. Thank you. We haven't even gotten to sacraments yet. We will talk about that. So basically, if you are wanting to become Catholic and you're not Catholic, then that's you'll need to be have sacraments, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. Um, or if you're Catholic and you never got confirmed, that's something that happens sometimes. Um, that would be another case of that. Lent is coming. Um, Bree helped you remember that today? I was like, yes, Lent. Um, really quick couple things on Lent. Lent is something that the Catholic Church in the very, very early centuries of Christianity invented for RCIA. Really did. And basically what it was is the church said, we have these people who are coming into the church. We need a period of preparation for them where they prepare their souls to be baptized. And they turn away from sin, and they turn towards God. And there's three big things that the church um, recommends during Lent. Um, I'm not going to write it down. Okay, we've got a good, we got people here tonight. Um, the three ones are prayer, and we're going to see, this comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter, predominantly chapter 6 in Matthew, is where Jesus talks about this is the heart of the Christian life. But the church wants us to in, more intensely than normal to be resolved to pray more, to fast, and to give alms. Right? And alms sounds like a medieval word, right? Alms giving means right that we help out poor people. That we give away some of our money and we help out the poor. By the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about these three, he doesn't ask you to do them. He assumes that you're already doing them. And so when he teaches on them, he says, he says, when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Uh, the hypocrites love to blow the trumpet before them. Amen, I say to you, they already have their reward. When you fast, right, he assumes you're already fasting, he assumes you're already giving alms. And then in that same section, he teaches the Our Father. Um, those are central. So the church wants you to intensify that. It begins on Ash Wednesday, which is in, it's like February 16th or something, does anybody know? 17th. 17th? 
Amy? Awesome, thank you. February 17th. Um, so Ash Wednesday is 40 days until the end of Lent, until the Triduum. So we go to Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. 40 days, and 40 is a very biblical number of testing and of preparation. So it's 40 days. If you count them, you will come up with a number more than 40. The reason for this is because we don't count Sundays. Because Sundays are the day of the resurrection and the day of rest, and we don't fast on Sundays. You will meet Catholics who will be like, well, that's for you weaklings, right? And some people just cop out, and they're like, you know, if you're like, I'm giving up alcohol for lunch, it's common for people to give up things. And you'll see people, like, it's a Sunday night, and they have a beer, and you're like, Shh, you're so weak. Um, we're not supposed to fast on Sundays. You, if, you, if it's something helping you grow in holiness, you really can. But the church considers Friday is a day of fasting when we're supposed to give something up, and the season of Lent in general. But Sundays are the day of, of resurrection and of feasting. Okay, didn't mean to talk about all this. When Lent comes, we are going to, and maybe even sooner before that, but certainly with Lent, it's been this weird year with COVID. We're going to start having something called breaking open the word. And what that means is if you're coming into the church, we want as much as, as is possible. We're going to have you guys come to the 10 a.m. Mass. I think we'll, we'll finalize which Mass it is. Um, might be a different one than that. But um, after the homily, those of you who aren't yet Catholic will come down here. And we'll have like Trevor or me or someone walk through the readings with you. And it's just more time to prepare and ask good questions before entering the church. Questions about Lent? I feel like you all have questions, but you're supposed to be It ends beginning with Holy Th with the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday. So Easter, yeah, so Thursday is the Holy Thursday, then you have Good Friday, and then the Easter Vigil is the beginning of Easter. It's the middle of the night. We'll talk about that. If, you're, if you come into the Catholic Church, if you're coming from a Protestant background or a non-religious one, and if you're becoming Catholic this spring, the night that will happen will be at the Easter Vigil. It's the, most, it's the highest liturgy of the entire year for Catholics. It's super powerful. It is super long. And it is amazing. But we'll talk about that. Other questions? Holy Thursday. So Holy Thursday, we will have what's called the Mass of the Lord's Supper. I think we do that at 7 p.m. usually. And basically, so in the last week of Jesus' life, Thursday night, he had his, the last meal with the disciples, the apostles. After they finish the meal, they go to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. He's held overnight in the house of Caiaphas. I've been to the place where he was probably held overnight. It is crazy. Um... And then the next day, they bring him before Pilate, the Roman governor, where he's condemned, scourged, <laughs> the emotions, um, and crucified. And then Easter Sunday comes. So we will hit all that. We've got a, every year, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And every year, I'm like, man, I took way too much time in that other stuff. Now we got to really move. Okay, other questions? Because we got to move. Okay. That's Lent.
Tonight's topic is justification, but before we hit that, any questions about what Trevor talked about with Mary last week? It's a huge topic, and so I don't want, I don't want you to be bashful. I know we do have ground to cover, but that's an important one. If you're coming from a Protestant background, Mary's probably a tough one for you. So I want you to ask your questions, yeah? So I have always understood the Immaculate Conception to mean no sex. Right, no. Is that? That's perpetual virginity. So the Immaculate Conception is not designed to tell us that Mary bore Jesus without sinful. Nope, that's the perpetual virginity. So Immaculate Conception means that Mary was conceived without sin. Okay. So and here's why we believe that. Did you ever talk about this at all? Um, the he reason talked about no original sin, but, but he didn't talk about The reason why is very simple. Same reason we believe in purgatory. Same dogma. Is that um, in the Bible, you cannot enter God's presence. This is a huge point. If you're coming from a Protestant background, I'm going to be riled up tonight. I'm going to miss you guys. I'm going to be fiery. It's time. If you're coming from a Protestant background, this is a major point. You cannot enter God's presence unless you are free of sin. You cannot enter God's presence unless you are free of sin. You cannot enter God's presence unless you are free of sin. This is all over the Bible. When Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, when they commit sin, what happens? Lots of things. They're cast out of the garden, though, because and they cannot dwell there. The garden is where God's presence is. And so in mercy, because God loves Adam and Eve, he casts them out of the garden because sin cannot dwell in God's presence. Um, there's tons of examples. In Exodus 19, when the Jews arrive at Mount Sinai, God makes them cleanse themselves, and no one can go near the mountain unless they are purified. And in the end, the Jews all say, none of us can go, and they only send Moses. Um, Psalm 24, who will ascend the mountain of the Lord, the man with clean hands and pure heart, who has not defiled himself with worthless, thing, worthless things? Um, Psalm 68 says the same thing. Um, Isaiah chapter 6 is my favorite one. Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision, he's a prophet, and he has a vision that he is in the heavenly courtroom, and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And all throughout the Bible, there's this line where God says, No one can see me, no man can see me and live. It's because of sin. So what, they, what happens is Isaiah says, I'm unclean. I can't be in God's presence. I have sin. A seraphim, Patrick and I were joking on this about on the podcast, a seraphim is a Hebrew word that means a burning one. In the Bible, God's presence is fire. In Exodus 3, when he appears in the burning bush, it's, he's a fire. He's in the presence of a fire, in the form of a fire. In Exodus 19, when he shows up on Mount Sinai, he's, the whole mountain is on fire with God's presence. Seraphim are the burning angels, and they're on fire because they are in God's presence. And so what happens is the seraphim goes to the altar in God's heavenly throne room. He picks up a coal with a pair of tongs, and my dorky friend Tim Gray, who's a total Bible nerd worse than me, he always says, that is one hot coal. Right? If the burning angel can't touch it because it's too hot, he gets a tong to grab the coal. 
This is where you laugh because you're a Bible nerd. Um, but anyway, they take the coal. The angel takes the coal. He touches it to Isaiah's lips. And the angel says to him, your sin is purged and your guilt is removed. And then Isaiah is able to be in God's presence. Something very similar happens in Zechariah chapter 3. In Hebrews, we're told that without holiness, no one can be in God's presence. In Revelation, we're told nothing unclean can enter God's city. There will be no sin. This is all over the place. In Luke chapter 5, do you want me to go on? Okay, made my point. So, the Immaculate Conception is about this. Whenever the church teaches anything about Mary, and this is what I want to teach about Mary, well, the, Mary is about Jesus. Everything the church believes about Mary is about Jesus. So Mary does what, the reason that Mary is free of sin is because she had to be the presence of God's dwelling place in this world. Uh, oh, what is his name? Um, St. John Damascene had a, had a mystical meditation at one time. This is like 8th century. One of the great early Christian theologians. St. John Damascene uh, had a vision where Mary herself was the burning bush. Because the mystery of the burning bush is that God's presence is there. And Moses looks at it and he says, even though the bush was on fire, it was not consumed. And St. John Damascene says that's the Christian mystery in total, is that God would dwell inside of us, but we would not be consumed. And the first person that happened to is the Blessed Virgin Mary. By the way, one more fire reference. Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit descends upon the church in fire. Way to all answer it together. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, that's what the, the Immaculate Conception is that you can't be in God's presence without when you have sin. And so what we believe is that God, and all, the official teaching of the church says this, Jesus is Mary's Savior. And usually one of the problems that Protestants have with Catholics is they say, if Mary didn't have sin, how could God save her? And when the dogma was officially declared, the church used the word prevenient grace. And here's what that means, just the word prevent. So you can save people in two ways. Imagine if there's a giant pit in the bottom of this floor, or just in this floor, and I'm a schmuck, I'm not paying attention, I fall in. You could come by and you could get a rope and you could save me and pull me out. But what if I'm walking, just staring at the ceiling, and I'm about to fall in, and you ran in front of me, and you pushed me out of the way so that I didn't fall in? What the church is saying, and what the church believes, is that Jesus is Mary's Savior, but that he saved her in a different way than he saved us. His cross is still what saved her, but he applied the graces of the cross so that Mary wouldn't fall into the hole, so there would be a fitting dwelling place for his son. One more thing on the um, Immaculate Conception. Mary, and this is the second big point about Mary. If you get this, you'll get Mary. Mary teaches us what it means to be a Christian. The whole point of the Christian life is for God to dwell inside of you. That is all over the New Testament. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and I in you. 
St. Paul says, I am in labor pains until Christ is formed within me. Galatians 2.20 is always a favorite. Um, <clears throat> I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Christianity is not a set of rules. It's that God wants to live inside of us. He wants to dwell within us. This is all over the scriptures. All over the place. In, in Ephesians twice, so people sometimes are like, how could God, how could you say that? How could you say God would do this to Mary? St. Paul says twice in Ephesians that he will do it to you. Twice. He uses the word uh, amamos, which is without blemish. Another word for that would be immaculate. The only difference in Mary, Mary goes ahead of us. She shows us what it's going to be like for us. It's a, it's a tremendous hope. So Mary is what we call the archetype of the church, which means the perfect model. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to say yes. Uh, in Luke 1.28, when Gabriel comes to Mary... Mary, from the depths of her heart, says, Let it be done unto me according to your word. In RCIA, for all of you, Mary is such a sign of hope, because what she does for us is, um, she tells me what it means to be a Christian, is that if I say yes to God, if I surrender myself to him, God himself will come to dwell inside of me. Again, in Luke 1, when Gabriel comes to Mary, he says, she says, well, how can this be since I don't have sexual relations with a man? And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the Most High will overshadow you. That word is the same language that's used when the temple is filled with God's presence. In the Old Testament, when Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, and when God's presence comes to dwell Back in the tabernacle at the end of Exodus and Exodus 34. Also, um, in the heavenly temple, when it talks about how God's presence will fill it, this is the language that's used, and it was not mistake. The early Christians did not miss this. The temple is important because it's where God dwells. In the new temple, the first new temple of the New Testament is the body of the Blessed Virgin Mary because God himself comes to dwell within her. It's amazing. And then at Pentecost, God will do the same thing for the church. He will pour out his spirit. And so Mary shows us what it means to be a Christian. One more thing. Sorry, we're never going to get to our topic tonight. Um, I blame you all. No, I blame Trevor. Um, one more thing. The Immaculate Conception is hard for a lot of people. <clears throat> what people don't tell you is that it's right there in Luke. So in, when Gabriel greets Luke, um, he says to her, Hail, full, hail, full of grace. The church, when we say the Hail Mary, we insert just her name, Mary, in that prayer. But he says, Hail, full of grace. That word, I'm so glad the week this came up. This is good. Um, uh, I should spell it this way. Hit the R. So, 
That word in Greek, full of grace, is kakaritomia. Um, this is so freaking cool. This is what scripture scholars call hapax legomenon, which is, a fan, which is a fancy way of saying it's only said once in the Bible. That word is not used anywhere else in scripture. Kakaritomia. So the word in Greek for grace is charis. Can you see that here? So what this word is, if you're a grammar kind of geek, which I hope you are, I'm actually not really. Father Mike is, because he teaches Greek at a graduate level. Anyway, this is what's called a perfect participle in Greek. And here's why this matters. In Greek, there's the tenses actually have theological significance. So in the past tense, there's different types of ways you talk about things in the past. The normal way you talk about the past is what's called the aorist tense. And that's if you say, you know, oh yeah, back in 2000, I remember that was a hard time. Um, there's the imperfect tense, which is an ongoing action that was in the past. So Thursday, when I was biking through Wash Park, that's imperfect. The perfect tense you only use for a very specific reason in, in Greek. You only use it when something happened in the past with effects that continue into the present and the future. That's the only time you use it. What this word means is it means you who were made full of grace in the past that has continued into the present and to the future. And here's one really cool thing. If you go read that passage, I didn't put it on your sheets tonight because this isn't our topic. <clears throat> Mary is troubled when Gabriel appears. When Gabriel appears to her, she's freaked out. And what I always thought, right, if an angel appeared to me, I would be freaked out because it's an angel. <laughs> I would be like, okay, need a new pair of underwear. Please come back in an hour, right? <laughs> That's not what it says in Luke 1. It tells you why Mary's freaked out. It says that Mary was greatly troubled, not at the angel, but it says she was greatly troubled at the greeting. Mary is troubled by what Gabriel says to her. By this. It's an amazing moment. Okay, so one last thing on Mary, and if you guys have questions, we'll take them, because this matters. Um, when we get to sacraments, what we're going to see, when we talk about baptism, which is coming quickly, hopefully, baptism is the entrance into the church. And what the New Testament teaches us, and what the church has always taught, is that baptism is where you come to share in the identity of Jesus Christ himself. When you are baptized, or if you have been baptized, you will have a share. You are baptized into Christ. You will come, we talk about being a member of the body of Christ, which is what happens at baptism. So here's the thing. 
if you come to sharing Jesus' identity, and when we get there, oh, it's so, so cool. Um, you will come to sharing his identity. And you know what that means? We, we get used to this. The family prayer of our church is the Our Father. God only has one child. And I hate to break it to you, you're not him. He's one. The reason that you and I can call God our Father is because through your baptism, you will come to share in the identity of Jesus himself. You'll be baptized into him. But it doesn't stop there. If you're coming from, again, from an evangelical or Protestant background, the way that we usually think about Christianity is God and me. It's about me and God. What Catholics believe is that God, when, when you have this, this really matters, this is hugely important, but when you have that relationship with God, with Jesus, you find yourself with a whole bunch of other me's. And what it does is it creates a family. And so, for Catholics, right, if, if you come to share in the identity of Christ, his father is able to be called your father, and his mother becomes your mother. Which is why in Revelation chapter 12, the beast goes off to do war against the mother of the Messiah and all of her offspring. And it says in Revelation 12, the offspring of the mother of the Messiah are those who love Jesus and keep the commandments of God. If you keep the commandments of God and you love Jesus, your mother is Mary. Which is also why in John chapter 19, on the cross, Jesus turns to John the Apostle, who's the beloved disciple, and he says to her, Behold your mother. I love that. Okay, other questions? Push back on that. So yeah. when Jews got baptized then, did they not have a baptism? No, they, don't, they, have, um, they have circumcision. Right. And in Colossians 2, we're going to get to this, but I said, how, our list is really long of things I'm going to get to. In Colossians 2, St. Paul tells us that baptism is the circumcision of Christ. So in the Old Covenant, right, we're going to talk about the Old Covenant. Things are valid, but in Christ, they're transformed and elevated. The Protestant paradigm is the Old Covenant was bad and we leave it behind. Not all Protestants overgeneralization, but generally true. The Catholic paradigm is that, no, the Old Covenant was good, but it's renewed and transformed in Christ. And so in Colossians 2, the, the way you became a Jew and entered into the covenant, the sign that you entered the covenant, right, was only males, was circumcision. In Colossians 2, Paul says that baptism is the circumcision of Christ. And it's the entrance into the new covenant. Nobody wants to fight me tonight. Anybody else? Other questions? It's all good. Yeah. Not a question, but Trevor told us to bring up the Queen Mother, because he didn't talk about it at all. He didn't talk about the Queen Mother. I, that's the one thing I told him he had to talk about. Okay, we talked about this. Here's the other thing. If you're, if you're someone who comes from a, a biblical background, right, 
again, and we, I think we actually talked about this briefly, but I'll hit it really quick. In the, the New Testament, how does the New Testament start? The Gospels, that's John 1. What was the very first chapter of the New Testament? It's a genealogy, right? Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy. What does that genealogy prove? Jesus is the son of David, right? He's the king, right? Remember, there's, there's three sets of 14. And the reason that Matthew does that is because in Hebrew, letters have numerical values. The numerical value of David's name is 14. And in Hebrew, did we talk about this? Yes, we did. Okay. So David, 14 is the, is the number of David's name. And here's the thing. Matthew is making a huge point here. In Hebrew, you cannot say uh, what's called the comparative or the superlative in grammar. So I can't say that um, Father Brian's good, Nicole is better, Kenan's the best. You can't say better or best in Hebrew. The way you say that is you say it twice. So if you say Father Brian's good, you say, okay, he's good. I think it's tov in Hebrew. And if you want to say Nicole is better, you'd say tov tov. She is good good. And if you want to say Kenan's the best, you'd say tov tov tov. Which is now why you understand when you come to Mass, we sing holy, holy, holy. The New Testament begins with David, David, David. And this isn't just me. Go read Matthew 1. Matthew says this explicitly. And what the New Testament is telling you is that the Messiah, the great king, the true David, the true one who builds the kingdom, is Jesus. Now here's the trick, though. If Jesus comes and the Jews are awaiting the kingdom and the, the whole New Testament talks about how Jesus is the new king and his number one topic that he talks about more than anything else by far is the kingdom. If you are a Jew... In the Jewish kingdom, guess who the queens are? The mothers. The Gibera. So if you go back to the Old Testament, if you read through 1 Kings and 2nd, 1 and 2nd Kings, go back and read them. Not every single time, but almost. Whenever they list the, the new king, it marches through dynasties. And what it'll say, it will tell you, it'll say, and then uh, King Jehoshaphat reigned. I love that name. Um, King Jehoshaphat reigned. He reigned for 18 years in Jerusalem. And his Givera, his queen mother's name, was so-and-so. If you are a Jew, nothing's more natural than for Mary to be the queen. You expect it. That's how the Jewish kingdom works. And the Jewish queen's, um, her role is to intercede for the people before the king. The first Gibera in Israel is someone named Bathsheba. When Solomon becomes king, his mother reigns, and the first thing she does is she goes in front of Solomon, and she intercedes on behalf of the people. In John chapter 2... I told Patrick I've been kind of rusty on scripture lately. I feel like I'm feeling better tonight. Um, in John chapter 2, is the wedding feast of Cana? Guess what the queen mother does? 
She makes intercession before the, in front of the king on behalf of the people. In Revelation chapter 12, this is a big one. If you're coming from, a, a, again, like a Christian, non-Catholic background, this is a big issue for you. Please go read Revelation 12. So in Revelation, did, did Trevor talk about Revelation 12 at all? Um, this is where Trevor and I are so different. He is way smarter than I am, but I'm like, use the Bible. Um, okay, so... In Revelation, at the very end of chapter 11, and I should probably just read this. In Revelation 11, so when's the last time in the Bible where we see the Ark of the Covenant? Does anybody know? Yeah, when do you see the Ark of the Covenant, like for the last time? Yeah, it's removed from the temple. Does anybody know who, who removes it from the temple? Daniel? Or... Later than that. And by the way, if I'm like way too intense tonight, just tell me. I'm feisty, you can be feisty too. Be like, FB, what the hell did you drink today? <laughs> Throw something at me. I don't want to overwhelm. I feel like I'm overwhelming you now, and I don't want to do that. Um, in Revelation 11, so, oh, so Jeremiah the prophet remove the temple or the Ark of the Covenant from the temple so that it wouldn't be taken by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. No one has seen it since, except for Revelation 11. So in Revelation 11, 19, it says this, and you got to remember the Bible didn't originally have chapters and verses. The Catholic Church added those in the Middle Ages so we could find things easier. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So there it is. The ark is there. And most people would just stop. But remember, there's no chapter divisions when Revelation's written. The next verse says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. So there's a woman with a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. I want to find... I want to keep reading. Um, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. Here's a key verse. In verse 5, Revelation 12, 5, she brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So this woman, her son, will rule 
all nations. And it says with the rod of iron. That's a reference. It's, one of the, it's a pretty frequent reference in the New Testament. That's a reference to Psalm 2, verse 8, which is a prophecy about the Messiah. Why are there 12 stars in this woman's head? Because she's the queen of Israel. She gives birth to the king, the Messiah who will rule all nations. It doesn't get more clearer than this in the Bible, by the way. Um, So in verse 13, jumping down a bit, it says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. By the way, this could be coincidental, but I don't think so. In John's Gospel especially, Jesus always refers to, to Mary as what? Which the early church tells us is a reference that Mary is the new Eve. The new Eve. So verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. But the woman was given the wings of a great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. All the way to verse 17, the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. Listen that one more time. The dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. Yeah? So would that mean that that portion of Revelation has already occurred with the birth of Jesus and the foundation? Revelation is very tricky to interpret that way with time, that this has already happened. But it certainly seems that there's a... Revelation goes back and forth. Um, and, and whether... It, it does, because it, the dragon is thrown out of heaven onto the earth, and it's a clear reference to Satan. Um, so yes, time in Revelation is kind of a funny thing. The interesting thing, I think, though, is regardless of some of the trickier parts of that, there is a woman in Revelation who gives birth to the Messiah, and we're told that she's the mother of all Christians. I wonder who that could be. Mm-hmm. And if it's not Mary, then who would it be? Yeah? Is dragon strong with the devil? It's used as an image for the devil, and in one of the things that's kind of cool here is, I don't know much Hebrew, but I know a little. In Genesis... When the serpent appears, you know how we kind of think of like like the serpent in Genesis as like a little garter snake? And he's kind of like, oh, look, cute little snake. Um, the Hebrew word there is nahash, which can be translated serpent or dragon. Brian, is there a question? No. Oh. It's like high school, you know. <laughs> here's the other piece of this God and th- maybe last point if, if, if we're good on this we're moving on 
But ask your questions because this really matters. Sometimes it's better when I don't prepare and I'm just feisty and then I'm like not trying to be too nuanced and cover everything. But if, again, if you're coming from a non-Catholic Christian background, one of the big questions is, isn't Jesus enough for, for me or enough for you? If God's all-powerful, if he's almighty, he knows everything, he loves me more than anything, why would I pray to anybody else? Why would I pray to Mary? There's two big things here. Number one, if you're from a Protestant background, prayer, for most Protestants, what they hear when they hear the word prayer is they hear worship. Catholics do not understand prayer to be worship. And it took me a long time to realize this over the years of going deeper in my faith. And I realized that some, sometimes, not always, but a lot of the time, there's, a, there's literally we're using the word in different ways. When Catholics say prayer, we do not always mean prayer to mean worship. Prayer for us is just a, a way of communication. So Catholics will say, we don't worship Mary, we just pray to her. And you're like... <laughs> what? And it seems like nonsense. For Catholics, prayer is not the same thing as worship. Um, second, the second bigger point is this. Coming, if you're coming from a Protestant background, there's that question of if God's all-powerful, if he loves me more than anything, why would I go to anybody else? And here's my analogy for this. I think it's pretty good. You might not, but you're wrong. Um, <laughs> My brother, Sean, as I talk about him a lot, love him a lot, love my younger brother, Trent, too. Sean has four kids. The oldest now is 14, which freaks me out beyond belief. Um, Claire Jane's 14, and uh, a side note is they all think I'm fat. It's kind of fun. Because they, they are the skinniest family on the face of the earth. My brother won the Denver Marathon, and literally when I was at their house last week, all the, like my little nephew, he passed me a little note, and I opened it and said, you're a plumpkin. <laughs> I was like, so then I went and sat on him for 10 minutes. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, well, deal with the pumpkin. Okay, but here's, my, here's the point, the analogy of my brother. When little Lucia is the youngest, and she is a fireball, she would love tonight's class. Lucia is a fireball, and I love Lucia. And Lucia, um, imagine that she wants, let's say, a bowl of cereal. And she's too short. Right? She's in the kitchen. She's too short. And she's at, and what would you do? She asks Clara Jean, who's the oldest. She says, Clara, I need a bowl of cereal. Will you reach up and grab the cereal for me? If my brother's in the kitchen, this is, and this is, it's an analogy, but I'm very serious about this. My brother is not jealous that his two daughters asked each other for This is the way that Catholics, I'll get one second, let me finish, I'll come to you. But this, this is the point for Catholics, is that if you love God, what happens is God loves to have his family loving each other. That doesn't take them away from my brother. It doesn't compete with his love. It's not a zero-sum game. If I love one person, that doesn't mean I have less for another. Love doesn't work that way. Love overflows and it binds a family together. And so the Catholic vision of things is God is not jealous if I pray to a saint. 
all things happen in God and our communion is in him. But God loves that he has a family. And when you love God, you are necessarily brought into communion with those who love him. We do it on earth, right? This is the, you've probably all heard this. Catholics, people say, well, how could you pray to a saint? Why would you pray to Mary? And the Catholic version is, have you ever asked anyone to pray for you? Of course you have. Why is it wrong to ask one of you to pray for me? Or why is it okay for me to ask one of you to pray for me and not the mother of Jesus Christ, who is certainly in heaven, and Scripture says is in heaven? Is she not able to pray for me because she's in heaven? Seems odd. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I think that can be a really confusing thing for some of my non yep. friends. Yeah, patron saints. So, <clears throat> so patron saints sometimes mean there's like particular causes, right? So, and I do think there's a caricature, like, of, like there can be of so many things. Um, and so, so this can go amok sometimes. But basically, it means if a saint had a particular thing in their life that really was unique to their life, it makes sense that they can relate to some of the things that relate to that. Um, so the, the caricature of St. Anthony, right? Tony, Tony, something's... Uh, look around, something's lost, must be found. Right? And it's like magic. Right? And it's like you meet Catholics who do weird things and it's like magic. Like they're, they're like bury a statue and they're like, I hope my house sells. And I'm like, that's weird. Don't tell anybody you do that. <laughs> like, and don't do that. Like, that's just weird. Um, but... Um, there, there are things that make sense. So, for instance, um, I don't know, what would be a good example? Um, when you're in a time of just, like, great suffering, it makes sense that you could pray to someone who's been through something like that. Um, it's a lot of stuff like that. Like, so here's one. One of my patron saints is St. Philip Neri. And so St. Philip Neri is a Reformation-era saint, 16th and early 17th century, He's in Rome. Rome's corrupt. And he started a group of priests who would live together and try to live holiness. And he's famous for having a great sense of humor. And for us in my life, me and my brother, priests and the companions, we're trying to hold each other accountable and live a common life and hold each other to a standard of holiness. And I think we have a pretty good sense of humor as a community, some more than others. Um, and so praying to St. Philip Neri... It's not that I couldn't, you can't ask like St. Therese. Of course St. Therese will pray for you. But there's just something about like St. Philip Neri, you did something similar to what we're trying to do. There's something like that. Okay, other questions? Yep, Jim. So I get that, I, I, get, I get that analogy of like, yep. why can't I ask them to pray this? But I guess the, the thinking is maybe that um, how, like, how many people are praying to St. Anthony at once, you know, and like, how is he able to hear, right. I, don't, I don't know, like all those prayers? Yeah, we don't know the, like, the mechanics of it, but what I would just say, it's, it can only be in God, yeah. right? Only in God. And, you know, sometimes people, there are things that we can have a mature understanding of that we still don't fully understand. Like, I, my grandmother sometimes, who is a, actually, she's a super intelligent woman, but she used to tell my mom, that God had too many people praying to him and he was too busy. And I'm like, Grandma, <laughs> come on. 
Um, and, but it's, it's, it, obviously no human being could have that capacity. It's only if God allows it. Um, one more reference to this would be in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Saint, or whoever wrote Hebrews has this litany of all the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets and their example and their holiness. And he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now listen to that. We are surrounded. By a great cloud of witnesses, the Greek word for a witness is a martyr. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. And so Catholics have always had this idea, and again in Revelation, uh, when, when the angels pour out bowls of incense in front of God, it says that those prayers, or that the incense is the prayers of the saints, a good caveat for that, that doesn't mean saints in heaven necessarily. That might mean just Christians on earth. That's usually the way that the word saint is used in the New Testament. But there's something in heaven where the prayers of Christians arise before the throne of God. Why would we limit that to only people who are on earth? That is the total right question. I love that you asked that. So for those of you in our TV audience, um, why would the saints in heaven care about us on earth? And make sure I'm phrasing this right. If they're in front of God who is perfection and perfect beauty and holiness and love and all those things, why would they be concerned about us? The reason is because it's in the nature of love. Love always overflows. Why did God create the world? The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that God doesn't need the world. He doesn't need anything from you. He never, God did not learn how to love by creating something. He's a trinity. And so he is perfect love from all of eternity. But the answer to this is that love, by its, it's just how love works. Love always wants to go outwards. So my analogy I always use is, you know what happens in RCIA? Sometimes I'm like, I've taught the class so many times. I'm like, let's, let's nuance this a little bit more. And for a lot of you guys, it's like the first time hearing it, and like, what we need is just the basic answer. Um, so, what's your favorite movie? What's your name again? Titanic. Titanic. Jana. Okay, so Jana likes Titanic. God knows why. Um, <laughs> but when Titan, when the first time you saw Titanic, and you saw it, what did you do when you saw your friends like the next day? Probably talked about it a lot. Okay. Anything else? Probably Okay. Good. Why would you tell your friends to go see Titanic? Because I wanted to share how much I loved it with them. Do you gain, if your friend goes to see Titanic, do you get anything out of it? What if they don't, what if they never talk to you about it? Then no. Then no. <laughs> this, this, the way that, that we talk about this in the church is we say love is diffusive of itself. And so what, it, what that means is love always wants to spread. And even if like, like, like with RCIA, this is my favorite thing on earth to do. I just love RCIA, except for maybe like saving mass. Um, love RCIA. And do I get something out of it? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. Um, but a lot of people in RCIA, like, they'll go to other churches, they'll betray me, and like, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> they'll go somewhere else, fine. 
And I don't like directly get anything from it, but love is diffusive of self. And so the things that we love in our lives, we naturally want to tell, we naturally want to share them with other people. And so God, in his perfect goodness, it naturally wants to overflow. Which is why part of the reason why children are so natural in marriage is because when you love someone, love overflows. So now we're going to talk about contraception. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. Going once. Going twice. Yes. Kind of related to um, On one of the uh, Gregorian rants, you talked about how going to church isn't for us. Mm -hmm. But then you talk about that God doesn't need anything from us. Yep. We're not in church to, because he doesn't need us. Yep. But then a while back in our CIA, you talked about how God wants us. Yep. So I'm kind of, I'm hearing two different messages. And so. Right. It's good. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, that's no, a very good question. So actually, Pope Benedict talks about this in Deus Caritas Est. And here's here's the, the question so like this analogy might help us a little bit so in Deus Caritas Est and in another book that I love um, which is called Charity don't read it it's really hard well maybe, maybe we should I don't know whatever so in the book Charity um, the, the author is talking about almsgiving and in the Protestant Reformation um there is this concern that came up about almsgiving. And it wasn't just indulgences. What it was is that the Bible tells us that God associates himself with the poor. And so Proverbs 19.17 is a key place for this. Proverbs 19.17 says that if you give to a poor person, you make a loan to God, and he will repay you. And the idea is that the poor person can't pay you back, and God associates himself with the poor. And so um, this idea is echoed all over the New Testament, and if we, maybe we'll get to it someday, next year if we do two years of class. Mm -hmm. um, but one place this is echoed is in Matthew chapter 25, which we might get to tonight for justification. In Matthew 25, when Christians love the poor and the sick and those in prison and they feed the hungry and clothe the naked, Jesus says to them, as often as you did it to one of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Um, so Matthew 25, somewhere, there's something very similar in uh, Matthew 6 where Jesus talks about um, when you give alms, you know, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And then I say to you, you already have your reward. But when you give alms, give in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward or repay you. The Greek says repay. Um, and there's a bunch of other ones. Luke 12 is another one. Um, but anyway, here's the idea. So the question you're asking is, well, if I, so then if I give money to a poor person, 
Am I actually being selfish? Because shouldn't I want it to be not about me, but just about God? And so do you see how that relates to your question? When I go to church, shouldn't it just be about God and not me? And what Pope Benedict says about this is he says that the way love works and the, the fact that God has created a world that is good means that, yes, there is something to we want to have a selfless love that's not about us, but that God has made the world in such a way that when we do what's right, we always find fulfillment. So it's very similar to the way that people love their spouses or their children. There's a similar dynamic where, like, if you, um, if you do something that's really hard, but you do it for your daughter because you love her very, very much, um, did you do that for yourself because you feel like a good mom? It's probably not why you did it. Will you feel good about yourself? Yeah. And so it's something like that. God, God wants us to worship him. He wants us to be happy, but not because he needs us but because he loves us and he knows it's good for us. That's probably way too long an answer. Sorry. You guys want a five-minute break or you want to keep rolling? Five-minute break. Okay, five-minute break. All right, so um, five minutes. Take advantage of it. What is fasting? Fasting just means going without. So usually it's food, but it can be all kinds of things. So people fast from alcohol, they fast from food, they fast from like the radio or social media. Usually the first meeting is food. Mm-hmm. Jesus. But, but, but people will do it in like smaller ways where they say, I'm not going to cheat. Uh, okay. Um, okay. If you went all out, you would be supernaturally sustained if you survived. And that's okay to, like, for Lynn. That's okay to participate if you're not happy. It's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yep.
background and not a Catholic one, Mary is usually one of the hardest things for people, but I promise you, Mary, like, the intellectual piece, I don't know how you deny it. I just, I just don't. Scripture is to be understood in its context, and the Jewish context is definitive for the New Testament, and that's how you have to understand Mary, but for most people who become Catholic and they're coming from a a non-Catholic Christian background, Mary is about the heart of it. And, and when your heart kind of like, you have time with it, you sit with it, I promise you, you'll, you'll get there. If you want a, a great book recommendation on that, um, easy read, I promise. Patrick always says I recommend hard books. Yeah. Uh, worst. Um, I promise this one's easy. There's a guy named Dr. Scott Hahn. He was, he's very famous in this kind of context. He's done more for Catholic converts than just about anybody out there in our time. Uh, Scott Hahn was a um, Presbyterian pastor who became Catholic. His great story, his, his story of how he became Catholic and his wife and his, his wife's family, everyone in the family was a Presbyterian pastor and they met at a Presbyterian seminary. Um, but that book is called Rome Sweet Home. And that's just the story of how they became Catholic. And it's, it's just, you might relate to it. Like he, he had all these, he was doing his scripture research more and more and he was reading all these things. 
And he's, he started like becoming more and more sympathetic to Catholic viewpoints. And he didn't know why, but he started sneaking into Mass. And he was worried that if anybody saw him, it would be like a scandal. And today, he's, everyone in the Catholic world kind of knows Scott Hahn. He's like on the speaking circuit. He goes everywhere. He's written 10,000 books. We always joke that every thought he has ever had has been published. Um, he's a good writer. But anyway, Scott Hahn, um, the book about Mary, and he'll talk about how Mary was a harder one. And it took him time. He has a book called Hail Holy Queen. And he will talk about some of the things we talked about tonight. He'll talk about the biblical roots. But I think he has a great perspective because he's someone, if you're thinking about this, he's gone through this. He and his wife both. So, Okay. We have one hour for justification. Probably won't get through all this tonight, but we'll, we'll, I'll do my best. Justification is the question of how does a person go to heaven? So if you remember back in an earlier class, Protestantism broke off from Catholicism starting in the year 1517. When you think of Christians, there, there are other types as well. There are Orthodox Christians, but there's such a small minority anymore that almost everyone you have ever met in your life who is a Christian is almost assuredly either a Catholic or a Protestant. They might not identify that, but that is where their church comes from. So the, the Protestant churches started in 1517. And really they started later than that. But 1517 is the year Martin Luther um, nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And people marked that as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation had two key dogmas. Two doctrines that they will die on. The Catholics disagree with them on both of them. Uh, but does anybody remember what the two are? Very good. So, Sola Scriptura. Means the Bible only. When it, and so, you'll notice they, they both have sola. Only. Alone. Sola. Latin. Um, and then sola fide. So Protestants tend to be, no, only this. So Catholics, we will oftentimes say that Catholics believe in what we call et-et theology, which means both and. So Luther and Calvin in the 16th century can say it's only the Bible, no traditions. And Catholics say, no, it's scripture and tradition. And Protestants say it's only faith, which is what we're about to talk about. The only way you go to heaven is faith. That faith alone, sola fide. And Catholics say, no, it's faith and works. It's both and. Okay, so the question is, how do you go to heaven? Here's the prior, and if, if you really want to understand this question, you have to understand the question behind the question. What, what the Protestant concern is, is that Protestants oftentimes think that Catholics believe you can earn your salvation. Can you tell us what 
Protestants think that Catholics believe that. So that the caricature would be, like someone would say, Father Brian, you're a Catholic, so you think you can earn your salvation. Catholics actually don't believe that. Some, now, some Catholics do because they're ill-informed. But the Catholic Church has never taught that you can earn your salvation. God owes you precisely nothing. So, so that's, when, if you ever talk to someone who's worried about Catholic works, this is the fear underneath the question. Anybody who's coming from that background want to add anything to that? I don't want to caricature this, which is why your handout is three full pages. I was about to do four, and I was like, okay. S snap out of it, Brian. Anyone want to add to that? Yeah. That goes back to when um, Luther put like the guilty of on there because he uh, the church was selling indulgences. Is that kind of where that comes from? It's related to that. That is part of it. That the, the, the church was selling indulgences, which again is a, it's kind of like when we had the abuse crisis with priests recently, right? Um, when, when priests were committing horrific crimes of abuse, that's a real problem. And anyone who says this is a problem, they're right. Um, but the selling of indulgences was condemned by the church teaching itself. It just needed to actually be fixed. The same thing like with the, the abuse crisis, right? The church has never taught that abuse is okay, but it had a massive problem needed to be fixed. So it's kind of like that. Does that make sense? Okay. So, a couple of key verses, if you, and we're not going to go through all these tonight because we don't have time, but um, so when it says some key passages for Protestants, it's going to sound like, if you just read these, it will sound like faith alone. There are more we could pull out, but here's some of the key ones. So, uh, right where it says, underneath where it says some key passages. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So especially the first half of that verse, God didn't save you because you got your act together. Catholics believe that, by the way. I tell people that in the confessional every single day. Christianity is not the story of, like, I cleaned up my act, you know, I stopped snorting cocaine, and so now God, maybe he'll love me. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the story of a God who loved you. <laughs> Here come the emotions again. Christianity is the story of the God who loved you in your darkest moment. That's, and that's what Protestants are really trying to get at. You didn't earn God's love. He doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you because he is good. And, that's, and Catholics believe that. We'll get to the nuances. Let's read a couple more. Um, Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified. We had a question tonight. Is justification. And to be justified means to be made just or righteous. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in the divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. One more and then we're skipping. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Right? That's pretty clear. Sounds like it at least. We're going to show you that it's not. Um, we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. For is God the God of, Jew, God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Okay. Does anybody want to add anything to this? I just want to be careful on this one because this is a really big, important question for a lot of you. So feel free to jump in. So th this is the Protestant argument is faith alone. You didn't earn God's salvation, and if you think you can earn it, you cheapen what happened on the cross. What happened on the cross was God's free gift where he poured out his blood for you, and you keep, to think you can earn that is absurd. That's correct. We agree with that. Here's, here's the problem. So what, what Protestants, the question is, um, here's how N.T. writes it. So show and tell really quick. So the books I'm quoting tonight, I only quoted from three outside of the Bible, I think. Um, N.T. Wright, justification. Of the three, this is the easiest one if you want to read a book on it. Not a Catholic. He's a Protestant. He's broadly considered the top scripture scholar in the world. He's an Anglican who a lot of people are really scared that he's about to become Catholic. I don't think he will. Um, I really don't. But that's N.T. Wright. Love him. I've read most things he has written, which is hard because he's written like 80 books. Okay. Are you impressed yet? This is a book called The Faith of Jesus Christ. I do not recommend it. He himself says, this is Richard Hayes' uh, doctoral dissertation. This is probably the top scripture scholar in the United States, one of the top five in the world. Uh, he's retired now, but he was the chair of the Divinity School at Duke. Freaking brilliant. He writes, so this is his doctoral dissertation. Some of the quotes on your sheet are from this, not as many. Um, I was reading his like 20-year anniversary treatment of his dissertation, and he says, he says, well, he's like, I love this. It was an important work in my life. He's like, unfortunately, if you're not a New Testament scholar, you probably won't be able to read it. So I don't recommend it, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. This one is a Catholic author. He's the only Catholic of the three. It's a guy named Matthew Levering. And he is basically, this book is his dissertation as well. It's not easy. Um, this is him showing you what St. Thomas Aquinas says about this question. Um, so there's show and tell. Okay. So N.T. Wright, the first of those authors, in that book, one of the things he says, his way of phrasing the question is... This is a little different from that. I can't remember the exact phrase, but this is what he says. Does Jesus' faithfulness make ours unimportant? 
And notice here, I just want to make a distinction. Oh, that, that's right. I know how he says it now. He doesn't say faithfulness. He says obedience. Because Jesus' obedience make ours unimportant. I love the way he asked that question. Um, we're going to try to answer that in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> um, so here's the problem with, with those passages. There's a couple of them. We're going to try and do this really quickly the way that it usually plays out. And we'll pick up the pieces next week if we need to. The first problem is one you already know. Is that the next page is filled with things that say that good works are absolutely 100% necessary. We're not going to read all those. You can read them on your own. And what usually happens is if you get a Catholic and a Protestant talking about this, the Protestant says, Father Brian, haven't you read Romans 10.9? If you uh, believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him, you will be saved. Haven't you read Romans 10.9? And I'm like, well, haven't you read Matthew 25? Where Jesus says when he judges the world and those who go to heaven and those who go to hell, he says nothing about faith. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. Come inherit heaven because you did those things. And those of you who go to hell, I was naked and you did not give me clothing. I was hungry and you didn't give me food. I was thirsty and you did not give me drink. So depart into everlasting fire. He doesn't say a thing about faith. And you kind of fire back and forth and they're like, oh yeah, well what about Romans 3.27? We hold that man is saved by faith apart from works of the law. I'm like, what about James 2? Faith apart from works is dead, right? And like you kind of shoot your guns back and forth and you're like, yeah. And you're like, and it kind of comes down to like, who knows more scripture passages? And then at a certain point, and let's do one, I just want one of the passages that talks about works because I think it's super important. The question we're asking tonight of what do you have to do to go to heaven? Someone in the Gospels asks Jesus that question. Matthew chapter 19, the rich young man, and it's the bottom of your front page, some problem passages for faith alone. Behold, one came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? One there is who is good. If you would enter life, have a very deep faith. No, he didn't say that. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Guess what that is? That is a work. At least by the Protestant definition. And Martin Luther and John Calvin's understanding of this, Jesus' answer gets enough. He said to him, which? Jesus said, you shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. On and on and on. Um, I just want, if, you're really, if you really want to follow Jesus, I just want to challenge you. We have to take all of these passages seriously. All of them. Not the ones we like more than others. We have to take all of them seriously. If scripture is the word of God, that's, that has to be our attitude. It's not just in the gospels, right? And you can read all these things later. 
But like Romans is supposedly, Luther says the book of Romans and Galatians are about being saved by faith. There are passages in both of those letters that affirm the opposite. So in Romans chapter 2, Paul says that when God comes to judge the world, he will judge each person according to their works. In Galatians 5, Paul warns a bunch of Christians that if they practice immoral things, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so how do we make sense of this? How do we hold it together? Here's a key to it. If you look at that second page at the bottom where it says saints, scripture scholars, theologians, the second paragraph is what I want to read. And this is absolutely critical to this discussion. Whenever in the New Testament, most of the passages from St. Paul that people quote for faith alone, Paul's going to say it's faith and not works. And not always, sometimes he says, sometimes he doesn't. What he says is works of law. And now read N.T. Wright on this. What then are the works of the law by which one cannot be justified in this sense? When Paul says you can't be saved by works of the law, what are the works of the law by which one cannot be justified in this sense? Again, the context is pretty clear. They are the living like a Jew of Galatians 2.14, the separation from Gentile sinners of Galatians 2.15, They are not, in other words, the moral good works which the Reformation tradition loves to hate. Go back to your front page really quick, and let's read Romans 3.27. Here's the key to this. When Paul talks about the law, Scripture scholars are pretty unanimous about this. There's only one time in the entire New Testament where Paul talks about the law when he doesn't mean the Jewish law. Paul's not talking about loving your neighbor or serving the poor. He's talking about circumcision and kosher law. That's what he's talking about. So let's read that again. So now, hearing that, look back at Romans 3.28. I'm sorry, 3.28. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. And here's the thing. Most people, when they quote that, they stop the quote right there. If you understand works of law, what works of law were are the things that separated Jews from Gentiles. The Gentiles shave their beards. Jews don't. Gentiles don't get circumcised. Jews do. Uh, Gentiles eat pork. Jews don't. And that marked the Jews as separate. And unless you understand that, you never understand why Paul says the next thing in that verse. And that's why most people never quote it. They only quote verse 28. They never quote verse 29. 
We hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law, or is God the God of Jews only? If you understand the works of the law, it's more than kosher, but let's just say kosher for now. All of a sudden, that verse makes sense. Because the Jews have kosher law, the Gentiles don't. It's not about whether or not God requires you to be a good person. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on sand. Um, this is critical. And what's happened, it's really interesting right now, this divide is, is still out there between Catholics and Protestants, but much less so among scholars. There's, yeah, go ahead. In simple terms, how do we get to heaven? Okay, in simple terms, how do we get to heaven? I don't have a simple term. So, faith and works. That's the easiest, but it's a little more complex, so let's, do, let's close the night with one last quote. Um... Uh, how do I find one that isn't... You know what? Here's the best way to say it. Without a quote, it's a better way to do this. Here's, let's use Luther's image here, and this will be helpful. We'll do two last paradigms. I would encourage you, the quotes I have given you, they're not all easy, but they're worth reading a couple times. If you want to be serious and not just surface level, right? Not just a surface level like Romans 3.28, Gotcha. <laughs> Ephesians 2.14, you know. If you want to go deeper, read some of these, okay? Um, if, you have a, if you're a Protestant and it's faith alone, um, so Carly, let me ask you. So faith alone um, is faith a gift. I think we talked about this, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Not as you understand it, but as most Protestants do. Uh, yes. Yes. So faith is a gift from God, right? So one of the problems that people run into is if it's faith alone, do you love how I just force you to give me the answer? If it's faith alone, and faith is a gift from God, and faith, and by the way, here's all, this, stories always help wake people up a little bit. Um, whenever I go on a plane, it's always super awkward. Right? Especially Southwest, where they don't have assigned seating. And so I get on there in my collar, and I'm like kind of hunkered down. And I'm like looking up, and every person like is walking, and they're like, <laughs> <laughs> and like every seat on the plane fills up until the very last one and they're like oh crap and it's like a fallen away Catherine is like my mother told me I need to come back to the church here I am sitting next to a priest um, but so one time though I was on a plane ride and this question came up and I was talking to someone and I could tell that they, we were, we were playing the shoot the versus game. But at a certain point, it became painfully obvious that eight rows around us were listening to, our, to every word of our conversation. And so I was a total jerk, and I probably am going to be in purgatory a little longer because of this. But I used it to my own advantage, which Jesus says you shouldn't do. But I did. But hopefully it was for the good of others. But anyway, so I just, I knew how she would answer. And so I was like, I asked her that question. I said, I said, hey, is faith, so is faith a gift of God? She's like, 100%. It's a gift from God. And I said, can you go to heaven if you don't have that gift? She's like, 100% not. 
And so I was like, so Gandhi's in hell. 100%. And the reason they say this, and I don't want, I don't want to caricature too much, is because of what Jesus says in John 14, 6. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I believe that 100%. The problem you end up with here, if you follow this to its logical conclusion, you end up with a God who sends people to hell for no reason. Which is what Calvin believed. Because you can't, faith is a gift from God. It's a gift to the Holy Spirit, and once you have it, you're going to heaven. And if you don't have it, you're not, and that's the end of the story. If that's where this tends, not always, but it tends to end up there. The other tension, um, I've got to get my head straight here. So um, <clears throat> it's kind of the idea that it doesn't matter. And this is the, as long as I'm a good person, I'm going to have an argument. And so at funerals, the first thing I preach is that, and at baptisms, is that you actually need Jesus Christ. The Christian tradition is that you, you don't have any power just to go to heaven on your own. The Catholic middle says that, holds both of these things in tension. What the Catholic Church says is that if, we don't know if God needs in hell. But if he is in heaven, it's because of Jesus Christ. He might not have known that in his life. But Gandhi's freedom matters. And so what the Catholic Church wants to say is over here is that your freedom does matter. Your choices do matter. God's not arbitrary. If someone lives an amazing life and they serve the poor and they love others... That doesn't mean they can reach God by that. But at the same time, you've got to wrestle with the fact like, so God's going to send someone to hell because he didn't give them the gift of faith. Okay, last image. If you have to go, we're over time. But I'm going to do one last image. I promise I'll make it as quick as I possibly can. Luther's image is this. We'll pick all the pieces up next week. Luther's analogy for this, Luther believes in what he calls alien righteousness. And what he means by that is he says, and he, I'm, I'm going to pick on you all a little bit, as I always do. Luther's calls you a piece of crap. He does. And what Luther believes is that human beings, they were not good. And so his analogy is that you are a pile of crap. That's what crap looks like. Okay? Um, and what Luther believes is that what happens when you have faith is there's what's called alien righteousness. And what he means is that you don't have any righteousness, so you need someone else's. And so what happens when you have faith is that Jesus' holiness is like snow that falls on you. And so if you've ever been out after a big snowstorm, big piles of crap that have snow on top of them, they actually can look beautiful. The Catholic idea, and we'll pick up the pieces next week, read your quotes. The Catholic idea is that Christ, you cannot earn your salvation. Christ is the only one who could do it. 
But once you cooperate with his grace, you never were a piece of crap. We don't believe that. We think you're broken, but not, we think you're so good. But you're transformed. And so holiness is actually real. It's not imputed or alienated. That you actually can be a saint. That there actually are Mother Teresa's. There actually are St. John Paul II's out there. That they could never have done on their own, but once Christ's love breaks into their life, their freedom allows that grace to transform them. Okay, I would love to go for another hour, but we're five minutes over. Thank you for your patience. I know this is dense stuff. Next week, remind me somebody. Next week, we're going to talk about covenantal gnomism. So somebody write that down. Covenantal gnomism will help us to understand the Catholic view of this and how you can 100% believe that it's only by the grace of God you're saved, and you can also believe that your freedom matters and you can't go to heaven without living a good life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we bless you and praise you tonight. We thank you for your mercy, which is infinite and good, and which we could never earn. Lord, we pray that you would transform our lives, that you would make us whole, that you would purge the sin from my heart, and give me the strength to cooperate with your grace. And Lord, we pray that your mother would intercede for us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Son and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Or something. Yeah. That's usually better than like 
We have conversations and they're always good, but they're always like, like one the old lady that's Catholic. I'm like, oh yeah, and I just I've had a good conversation with like I just got closer with Mary, trying to kind of edge that, and she's like, oh, I don't really, I just stick with Jesus, like I don't really do. I mean, the one liner that I use with that is still in Tim Gray. And Tim, Protestants say to Catholics, "Isn't Jesus enough for you?" The response is, "How can you say you love the King, but you don't love His Kingdom?" 